welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the head of urban music at Columbia. She also runs the Purple Agency. Felicia Fan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Glad we can do this. And I know the first time that we had Link, we're probably going to have a very different conversation than the one we're going to have now. But I'm excited to talk to you. It's great to hear from a music exec leading the type of music you are. And with how much that's just changed this past year in 2020, how has it been navigating everything that's been going on this year? First, it was just the sheer shock of the fact that we really were inside. I think there was the idea when you hear a pandemic's happening, and you don't really take it seriously. We're like, okay, we'll be back in business by July. And that was in March when we first heard that we were on lockdown. And then after we realized this was serious, we're like, oh, we're not going to have the BET Awards. We're not going to the Essence Fest. And so that probably hit reality around April when we saw that Coachella was going to be canceled. And then from that point on, we then saw that streams were down and that the listening habits were changing. So it caused us to take a step back and say, okay, people are really no longer listening to music. They're not watching TV. Like, what are we going to do? And so I won't say that that was the first thought. I think first it was our own mental health. It was our own like reality that we weren't going to fly. We weren't going to see people the same, that this pandemic was real and how are we going to make it work? But then, you know, we started to see the shifts around the world. We saw how different markets were coming back to music, particularly Italy and how the stream numbers started to go back up. And once we saw that streaming was going to return, I guess, after people started to understand their new norm, we said, okay, we lost drive time. We lost the trains, you know, in New York where you're listening to music, but people are going to come back around. They're probably going to go back to their favorites first, because like with anything, you go to what comforts you. You know, when you pull out your old school outcast, I'm from Atlanta, so I have to always go there. But there's places that you go when you need to feel comforted, you know? So I did that first round of just listening to the things that made me calm. And then after I think people recognized that, okay, streaming's back up, people are paying attention. It was, well, how do we survive in this new state of how people hear music. And I think we've always known the internet to be the beast that it is, but we started to recognize who's winning in COVID. You know, and when I say winning, because COVID, of course, is a very emotional thing for a lot of people. But when I say winning, we saw D nice win. We saw before things turned around, Tory Lanez win. We saw various people use their platform to make things happen. And so we we were like, okay, there are ways to be creative in COVID. So how can we be creative and how can we be the innovator and not the late arrival? Because with the internet, that's the key thing that you have to recognize is that you cannot be the late arrival. You have to be the innovator or the early adopter. And so we just started to see what can we do to recognize that we are in a pandemic, but people do want music and make sure that we are ready for every Friday that comes in the music business where we release. And so the plans got a little bit more, I guess, tight because we don't have touring. We're not relying on radio the same way. So we have to really get into our deep marketing bag. But we also have to realize what can we do to engage these fans? And so I think that is a lesson that we're still learning because the fan is fickle. The fan moves very quickly. I'm sure you're seeing a lot of artists kind of TikTok, you know, some good, some not so good. But you also saw that family really went to TikTok. You know, you saw that families were dancing to Savage by Megan Stallion, not just kids, but families. So 
how are we going to look at the habits of how people are spending time together? How are we going to look at the habits of how long people are listening to music and what times they're listening to music? And how are we going to, more than anything, create innovative ways for people to experience? I think you saw Travis Scott with Fortnite. Then you saw Little Nas X do Roblox. You saw ACDC, you know, that's rock. They ended up having the highest Fortnite attendance since it started outpacing Travis Scott by a few million. But what you're recognizing is that if people can feel like they're part of a real experience, if people can feel like they have some type of ownership with their consumer and that the fan feels like they still have a real deep connection with said artists, we can still make things happen. We're still learning. I think we're going to be learning for another year or two, but we're also realizing how to be nimble, how to be effective, but also how to be disruptive. And I think that is the key right now is how to still create disruptive marketing plans that are nimble, but also rewarding and memorable. From those learnings, what specifically has stuck out as the biggest surprise? Because I think a lot of people have thought of this era that is accelerating a lot of things that people assume was already going to happen. But I'm sure there's a lot that you didn't expect as well that may have come up. Are there any big surprises? I think like the surprise is just that we're in a pandemic and it's not going away. The surprise is that we still aren't touring and we thought we would. The surprise is that people still aren't following the rules. And I don't know if those rules will ever really ever be the same. Not that things are back to normal, but people got really innovative. People have figured out how to give you an award show. People figured out how to still give you your favorite morning TV show and your late night TV show. So I feel like the surprises were that we're going to still be okay if we take the time to take a step back and figure out how to be creative and seeing the BET awards and seeing people do their own individual takes on how they want to do the performances, seeing how people have taken a chance to reimagine how we do everything has been the biggest surprise. And I don't say surprise, but I think maybe resilient is the word I would want to use. Not surprise, but how resilient we are as an industry. You know, there's definitely parts that still have to be fixed. There's definitely things that still have to be rectified, but we're doing more podcasts than ever. We're doing more Zoom meetings than ever. We're figuring out how to do performances on Zoom. So I think the surprise is not really the word, but more so how we learn to be resilient, how we learn to figure out ways to still push the envelope and provide people with experiences that we thought were impossible. And I think that's any industry. I think it's film. I find myself getting my little QR code and saying, okay, you have to watch this film and you get to have your own personal photo booth. And I'm sitting here just like I am looking at you like, okay, so I'm going to take a picture from my computer and you're going to post it and realizing that you can still be interactive, that you can still bring people together. If you think about it, the excitement to receive a box with popcorn and whatever gadgets that people use to promote and you know bring you in it still causes some level of community and I think that what has happened more than anything is the different ways we found community through this pandemic but I would say resilience over surprise yeah that's a good way to frame it because I do think that there's been a lot of learnings there's been a lot of testing which I think has been the exciting thing artists are trying a lot of things as you mentioned on TikTok or live stream some of it works some of it doesn't work yeah, and you just have to take the risk. Definitely. And I think a lot of genres have been able to maybe come to the forefront. You know, I love what YouTube, especially Tuma, has done with, you know, a lot of the African and Afrobeats artists, you know, and the people that are getting the chance to have concerts and the risks that are being taken. So I think, if anything, more risks are being taken because you have to take risk in a situation like this. 
And I know one of the ones that your label was involved with closely, you mentioned it earlier, Lil Nas X and Roblox and putting that together and big success from the number of people that were able to engage with it and the coverage that it was able to get. What was it like putting that together? I want to give credit to Ryan Rudin, who is our head of touring. It was a lot of calls. I think that people think certain things happen overnight. But what I want to say about Roblox, which was so amazing, is that we watched the other experiences. We watched the other avatars and the way they came in to really create the most realistic avatar possible was fascinating to me. The amount of rehearsals and ways they would, you know, set little Nas up in these gadgets, you know, and really bring in this high level camera performance, body imaging, you know, all the different things that came together to make sure that they made sure this kid's experience was the best possible. Figuring out merch, figuring out ways to have you dress up. Do you want to get a cowboy hat? Do you want to get the panini costume? Like, do you want to get your hair braided? Thinking about all the realistic things that would happen if you were at Coachella or Lollapalooza or whatever festival of your liking. But I just found the innovation and the attention to detail to the avatar to be something that I thought was really special. And then understanding that these kids have so much real estate in how we move culture to see them line up and get ready. And, you know, for the first time, I never went on Roblox until that experience, you know, I'm 40 plus. That's not something I'm thinking about doing. I'm not the age demo, but when I was able to, okay, create my own avatar, jump into this concert experience, run around, fake Old Town Road set and then jump on stage with little Nas X and, you know, be at his feet while he was performing Panini. That was exciting for me. And figuring out how to do this all on my computer, again, something I would never do. I was just really impressed again by the teamwork, by the effort, and really about how they made this little Nas X avatar come to life. I'm not sure if you saw the Panini character and the little Nas X character as far as Old Town Road. And then of course now Holiday, Santa X, Santa Nas X, but it was a beautiful thing to see. And then, you know, creating where you could of course order the hats and again, be a part of this experience from tube to nail. I found that to be just completely fascinating. But again, we're thinking about different ways to launch music. And so knowing that we're going to launch music in this platform you know, Friday the song came out, but the first time anyone saw the performance was in this experience. And so again, it's how do we captivate these audiences? How do we still allow certain elements of surprise to continue to make people say, okay, I'm going to come back, knowing that people were so excited that we increased the frequency of the concert. It wasn't just one experience. Now it's keep, it's going and it's ongoing. People are calling him Roblox, you know, the Roblox man, because he kind of took over this experience in a way that he did it first. And that was another thing, being the first person to do it, being the first person to have this opportunity to bring this level of excitement to fans. And I'm sure if you were able to jump in and you decide you want to be a 10 year old for a day, the experience is not that long, you know? And I think that goes back to capturing people quickly and doing it effectively. That is something that we all have to figure out. You know, you don't have a lot of time because people can move so quickly to something else. But again, I find the technology of that experience to be something that no one has really, I think, captured to that level and to that intensity. So I'm really proud of the team. I'm proud of Ryan for bringing that opportunity to Columbia. And of course, making sure that we double down to make the experiences not just organic, but authentic as possible. Because I think that is what some of the Fortnite experiences, and not to compare or compete, but people needed to feel like it was real. They needed to feel like it was as tangible as possible. And I think we did a great job at that. 
Lil Nas X was perfect for that because he hits that demo. I still think about that clip when he was performing at that elementary school and those kids are wilding out. And that's the Roblox audience. They lost their minds and nobody likes to surprise people like Lil Nas. Like something about him just want to bring smiles on kids' faces, you know, and these are his ideas. I think it's really important that people understand a real artist contributes to their conversation. They don't just let us tell them what to do. And he's like, I want to go see some people, you know, I want to get out. I want to see what my fans think about me around the world. You know what I'm saying? So he was like, can we call somebody? So we called Complex and Complex was like, okay, we'll get some cameras down there, you know, just because you want people to see the experience. But it was more so seeing those kids run up to the front and know the words and kind of just stare at him in awe, but also have the cowboy hat and just see a song that transcended generations, you know, that again, when I go back to what I said earlier about what TikTok did about bringing all generations to one room, that was a song that did exactly that. You could be six and you could be 50, but you know the words to Tom Road. And of course the kids, I'll never forget the way Nas felt knowing that he could affect change that way and really bring smiles to kids' faces, which really goes into his song now. Holiday was, of course, about him coming back into the industry with a new song after two years. It was also about celebration and about being yourself and, you know, being your true self at all times and also matching that to the biggest holiday that we celebrate and making that splash. So it was all part of a real conversation and real thought. And, you know, I think the execution from the top down has been pretty great on that song. It's powerful. And it sounds like there might be more coming from both Columbia and Roblox from a partnership perspective. What does that look like? I'm not sure yet. You know, I think when something works, you want it to work again. So, you know, I think it's ideating. It's figuring out how to make noise a second time because you can't do it quite like the first time. So how can you elevate the experience? How can you make it different? And I think, again, those are the surprises that will keep having to come up with. But, you know, we haven't gotten as far. You know, he's still finishing the record. But I am very pleased and very impressed with the partnership and how it played out. And again, how it resonated because it wasn't just a music conversation. It was also a tech conversation. But I think that once you're able to merge all the things that make something work, music, fashion, tech, sports, you know, that's when you really have the supernova that you want to have. That's when you really have, you know, established the cultural zeitgeist moment that we all look for when you can merge all these different things together. So I think it's what's going to be their next technology and how we continue to magnify that technology within this really two-dimensional space. And I think that flexibility and option speaks a lot to the potential of live stream events itself. I think the variety is really where it's at. This can be a promotional tool for what you're currently doing. It can be an opportunity to launch and create an event around your new thing. You can monetize it itself or it can be lead generation for other monetizations. Do I need to hire you? Do we have to figure out how to get you on board? Because yeah, of course, because you know, it is about monetization. It's about the money. And, you know, luckily you have companies that can help pour in to those ad buys and those spends, but yes, you want it to be lucrative for both parties. But yes, we are looking at some people who can charge for tickets. I know Billie Eilish charged for her concert. I feel like some other people have tried to do that too. Dua Lipa just did too. And I know Meg The Stallion did a couple months ago as well. Yeah. So you really have to give somebody something to make them pay for it. So there has to be a true return on investment for both parts. So I think we're always trying to get the money, but people want to get their money back. 
So I think exactly what you're saying is true. How do we figure out how to monetize these experiences, make people feel like it's okay to not be outside, that we're getting the same moment. I'm not sure if you saw the recent Pandora concert with Brandy, you know, and the nostalgia and the fans and how well put together that was. So shout out to, you know, Nicole Johnson at Pandora, but it was just an amazing way to see how people are again affected by nostalgia if you can create nostalgia and you can create moments where people just don't expect people will come and they will spend their money but you just have to be thoughtful of people's time and expectations switching gears a little bit um interested with the wide range of artists you of course have on columbia a lot of young artists with a ton of potential and i know that everyone on the roster i'm sure you love but is there anyone in particular you're most excited about or anyone that we should really be paying attention to in 2021 i am a person who follows energy you can sign a lot of things. You can sign things, but you also have to fill them. And I think that's a hard thing to explain from where we sit, especially in a very data-driven industry right now. It's more than just saying that a person has a hit. It's an emotion that sometimes comes when you meet a star. Like it's the emotion I had when I first met JoJo. It's the emotion I had when I first met Kid Cudi. It's the emotion I had when I first met Andrew Day or Gary Clark Jr. It's a feeling. So while they might not be on your radar, you can tell when someone has star power because it's the energy they push out. So I say that to say that Elaine, she is an R&B artist out of South Africa. Her confidence is something that you don't see often in a 21-year-old. Her assurance is not something you always see in someone who is also not part of the same culture that you're from. But her dedication to her craft, her ability to ask questions lets me know that she's going to be a star. It's a certain energy. So Q, this young R&B artist, um, he just dropped a song called Alone. He plays guitar. He plays piano. There's a certain craftsmanship, a certain attention to detail that makes him refined and beyond his years. I'm sure you've seen the success of Polo G. Lyrically, he's really one of the best. And you have to take a time to listen to those lyrics. You have to take time to see the pain that he's seen at a very young age that he's trying to put out into the world. And so when I talk about excitement, I'm excited about a lot of artists on the label. I think that we do a great job of having a roster that is well-rounded, genre-specific, you know, whether it's R&B, whether it's pop, whether it's a hybrid of something. I think we do a good job of that. But there's always those people that are like your outliers, those people that you just see something in them if given enough time to develop them. And that's kind of where I wanted to go in this conversation about being empathetic to how I see artists. Development is something that is missing in this particular pandemic. So we're not able to see them get in front of a crowd and see how that young girl, that young guy reacts. I'm not able to see the outfit they have on to know that all these kids love Converse and they hate bands. And all those things are kind of important when ideating around breaking a talent. I do think that what happens and what will continue to push through, I hope, outside of, again, data, because we appreciate data, because stars do come from data. We wouldn't know that Elaine was the number one streamed artist in South Africa, if not for data. But the people I'm excited about are the people who still pay attention to craft in detail. People who come from a very sensitive, vulnerable space. Those are the artists that I always am the most excited by, because that vulnerability, that ability to put it all out there and not care. And when I say not care, it's not not care about the fan, but not care about being raw, always win. So Elaine, Q, Polo, I think TJ will continue to develop. I think the kid Leroy, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's 16 years old. Like how is someone 16 with so much to say? That's really 
interesting to me that they have so much to say at 16. Like, what happened to you that you're able to talk about this in this way? How do you express love at 16? Like, what are you even saying? Those artists, people didn't know Lil Nas X and they thought he was one song, but he's a super talent. His attention to detail, his mind, his thoughtfulness to his nail color, his hat, his stitching matters because he's a true artist in every sense of the word. He's a full circle talent. So I think there are a lot of young artists. So like I said, you might not hear about them for the next six months to eight months, especially in this conversation. But I'm excited to be at a label that has a roster of true talent that while they're young, they're developing, but they are passionate and they're smart and they're very capable. I could probably go on and probably mention, you know, another 10 artists that we're working on from T9 to LBS Keeman, who just dropped a song with 42 Doug, or even Big Stunt. He's 16 out of York, South Carolina. He plays football and he got a record deal. That's kind of like the what? So you have a record deal at 16 and you play football in the South. And I'm from the South, so I know what football means to the South. It's kind of like the Friday Night Lights conversation. We try to use that narrative of you have an artist who's 16 but still goes to football practice. You know, that's a conversation. And again, it's a guy who has 10 brothers and sisters. His grandfather died about two months before he got his record deal from a fishing trip, very close to his grandfather. And what I'm trying to say when I brought up that conversation about impact is that there are so many stories that we haven't heard and you don't get the best music until you start to pull out the story. There are still stories that we're pulling. So it's sometimes hard for me to say who's next, because until you know that story, until you know where they're writing from, that core identity of what's pushing that narrative out of their bodies, you don't know, but you can see it. You know there's something that as soon as they get that confidence, as soon as they get that pathway, as soon as they get the opportunity to truly feel like they are finally ready to engage, you're going to get greatness. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, because I think what it boils down to is that balance of the nature of just how the artist is themselves and the nurture that often comes from the development there. Exactly, Dan. Nature and nurture. And the balance of those two has always been interesting to me because I know that there's plenty of stories about whether it's whatever executive that saw the star when they were teens that then becomes the mega star now. I mean, we can list many of them. So many of them feel like, yes, you saw it. On the other hand, there's plenty of people that they saw it with, but it just didn't work out for whatever reason. And part of that could have been the nurture aspect as well. Timing's real. Timing and opportunity, you know what I'm saying? They don't always match up, but when they do, it's amazing. Listening to what you're saying, it sounds like there's something at Columbia specifically that may set that apart from your experience there. And I'm curious, what has it been like in the two years you've been at Columbia relative to your past at Warner or at Motown? What are some of the differences there between the record labels from your work experience? That's twofold because age also matters. When you are 22 years old and bright eyed and move to New York and you just want to emulate everything you see in Sex in the City, that's a different conversation at work. But what I am proud of the most is that I find myself being in the middle of growing up where there was still that real hardcore, really honest executive. And when I say that, there's a sensitivity to how you move now, because I say this in the most respectful way, but you have to catch your words a little bit more than back in the day. And so I had 
the presidents and the bosses who didn't have to catch their words because that's what this was. This is a passionate industry. You know, it's kind of like even if you watch sports, you know, it's like, it's not really a foul. Like, come on, this is a sport. I feel like I grew up in the let's get at it part of the music industry. So I'm 22. My first boss is Kadar Massenburg. He discovered D'Angelo and Erica Badu and coined the neo soul movement. So music soul child, not sure if you saw that Coca-Cola commercial, but Indie there was this moment of neo soul movement. So I was part of this narrative of, oh, you are part of the roster. 702, Brian McKnight, Erica Badu, and this is Kadar Massenburg. And always sharp at work, always dress well, you know? And again, this is a black man. So I'm coming from Atlanta. I went to Spelman. I'm a Delta. I'm proud of my blackness. And I'm at Motown. So look at this history that's right in front of me. And then one day I'm at my computer and Stevie Wonder walks in the office, just walks in the office. And I'm like, yo, that's Stevie Wonder. So I don't know if anybody's going to get that same experience again, because that's a time and it's a place and it's also a certain training ground. So I was in a training ground, truly making press kits and taking the photo every day and putting it inside the kit and taking the bio and putting it inside the kit and mailing it out a hundred packages a day to various people and getting the three quarter beta tape, which is about this big and getting them ready for the red carpets and putting them on my shoulders and walking down the carpet with my boss and passing out three quarter tapes. Now people just email me, you know, here's the link. So it's a physical conversation that I'm having too. So you physically had a different experience when you're 22 to 30 at Universal Records and Motown Records and all the reiterations of that. And then I worked for Monty Littman and Steve Rifkin and Sylvia Rohn was my last boss before I left to go to Warner. So I am with the person who created Loud Records, who discovered Wu-Tang, Sylvia Rohn, the first and only Black woman chairman to this day. So my training's different. My mind is different. The people around me are different. The energy's different. So segue. Then I moved to LA because I meet Lyra Cohen right after I'm working on a Kid Cudi record. And the funny story is that I was doing a party for Kid Cudi and Lyra's son was outside and he was underage. And the fire marshal's like, I see you. If you let him in, I'm going to shut this party down because I know he's underage. So I got plain Pat and a Mill Haney, like it's Lyra's son, but it's 300 people in that party. So you're all going to have to get on my face because I'm not about to get the party shut down. Bam. So, of course, I'm stressed out. Of course, I don't want to let down playing Pat and Mill and Leora's son, but I got to think about the bigger picture at that time. I end up at a football game. It was the Green Bay Packers New York Jets game. My friend was like, I got box seats. We're going to be in the suite. Get out the bed. I'm like, it's already second quarter. She's like, you love football, but let's just get out the bed. So she picks me up. Leora Cohen's in the box. I'm like, this is a cheese head. I'm like, okay. Hey, Lior, I know you don't know me, but I'm Kid Cudi's publicist, and I'm so sorry that your son couldn't get into the concert slash party on the side of some place in the West Village, but he can come to Fallon. He's like, oh, there's my son. I'm like, hey, son, hoping the son isn't like, she was rude. She was mean. Like, please don't say anything bad about me. He smiles. He's like, hey. So Lior takes my phone number. I take his phone number, and I'm assuming this is assistant. So I call him, and I'm like, hey, so I got the tickets for Fallon. He's like, hey, I also need them for a bat mitzvah. And I'm like, okay, I'll put you in touch with his business manager, Phil Sarna, and you guys can make that work. A couple of days later, 
Todd Moskowitz calls me and says, Lyra Cohen was really taken by you. And we're about to redefine how the urban roster is seen at Warner emerging with asylum. You'll have MMG, you'll have Waka Flocka, you'll have Gucci Mane. What do you think? I'm like, cool, let me think about it. So you start to ponder. And I also wanted to move to LA. So I moved to LA. I'm now here. I'm now at Warner. And so that's step two, because I'm no longer on the East Coast. I no longer am out to three o'clock in the morning. I am now in a situation in a kind of old school building, you know, the Warner building before they moved recently and became Warner Records. So now I'm in a different kind of history. I'm in the building that Prince started. I'm in different walls, a little more cozy. It's like a ski lodge. But the reason I say this is a juxtaposition of Madison Avenue and Park Avenue and Broadway to something a little more cozy, something a little bit more historical, something a little bit more introverted. So that changes your energy and you start to recognize, okay, how does this flow? What does Warner represent? I'm coming from Monty, who was a radio genius, Kadar, who was an A&R genius, Sylvia, you know, just overall her aesthetic. This is like Deborah's Prada. You better not look crazy at work. Now I am with Olivia Tortelli and Todd Moskowitz and Cameron Strang. And I'm using the names to kind of just sum up the presidents that I worked under to say that you have different energies. So now it's OBO, it's Gary Clark, it's Andrew Day, it's Jason Derulo. But I'm also 33 years old. I'm also looking at how to expand my journey in the music business. I'm a publicist, but I also, I like lifestyle and I like marketing and I see a hole because you guys are expanding and now you break us up. So some of us stay at Warner, some go to Atlantic, but I'm like, I'm going to try LA out. But in figuring out LA, I wanted to understand the other part of LA, which is film and TV and having common as a client and Jill Scott as a client, you start to see the brand narrative of an artist. When I say brand narrative, I'm talking about the expansion, not just being one thing, not just being about music, but how do you look at an artist from a full circle picture? So I feel like this was the manifestation of that Felicia, the Felicia that started to look at artists in a more holistic way. I was a publicist, I'm in these streets, I'm out. We're thinking about making sure they go to the next game, it's at courtside. But now I'm thinking about the brand awareness of them. I'm thinking about how do I make a full circle artists happen because now I'm working with artists that want this full circle picture and it started to kind of segue coming from Kid Cudi. So now I'm thinking about soundtracks. Now I'm thinking about, okay. And they're like, oh, Felicia, we want more of the lifestyle given to artists. We like that you deal in sports and fashion and film and that you know these people randomly. And how do you know these people so randomly? Your outside organizations. Can you bring that level of commitment and not just PR to the artist. So that's where the lifestyle marketing title came to me. Now I'm PR and lifestyle marketing. And with that, I had success. I had success working with BB Rexa and like I said, being part of the team for Dua Lipa, not the publicist, not the marketer, but still part of the team that saw her. And I think this artist who was overseas started to become something that was taking over. Seeing Andrew Day who wasn't a radio artist, but her ability to be tapped into the community. The community loved Andrew Day and her song stood for something. And that's kind of what I was saying to you earlier. Like it wasn't that she had the biggest radio hit, but she had this energy and she had a song that caused a movement. People needed to feel better when they heard her song. So I really started to target charities and things that made sense in 
correlated to hope. So the ACLU, anything that made sense for charity and hope is what I focused on. And then Gary Clark Jr., again, part of the team. But looking at, and of course, Jason Derulo. Some people love him, some people hate him, but he was a radio star. And he's a TikTok star now. And he's a TikTok star. So having this non-monolithic group of urban talent started to change my perception of, again, how do you see urban talent? And I use that phrase to talk about my next segue into Colombia because what we are dealing with now is how do we see urban talent? How do we recognize that we are not a monolith? How do we recognize that urban talent needs to be humanized? How do we recognize that there are stories to tell and that we have to allow urban artists to be genre bending and not bind them to one thought or think that they are only one thing. And so what has been exciting about the role as I found myself PR, but lifestyle marketing, but oh, Ron Perry's like, I think you can head urban music. And I want to thank Sean Holiday for referring me for that position. But that was the full circle moment. So when you asked me about the reiterations, it was me growing into the full circle executive that I am that said, to truly break these artists, you have to see them from every side of the equation. You have to see them from every department's POV. How does sync see urban? How does branding see urban? How does radio see urban? How does international see urban? How does marketing see urban? How does PR see urban? Because that's the only way to truly get into the DNA of constructing a conversation about how we uplift, develop, and continue to implore the urban community to be seen as bright, brilliant, and non-monolithic. You know, that's where I'm at right now. So I hope I explain my stages, but that's the best way I can explain from the PR assistant to the PR executive to in 2008 saying, I want to see more and do more because I'm not making a lot of money, but I don't want to leave the business and starting purple because Kwame was in the elevator and was like, Hey, do you do PR? I was like, you're a producer. Let me get permission. Kadar was like, sure. And then Swiss Beats was like, I heard you do PR. And I'm like, Sylvia, she's like, go ahead. You can do PR for him because he's a producer. So I was never quote unquote, double dipping. I was actually maybe helping. I was actually creating relationships. Swiss ended up getting a deal at Universal. Or, hey, Grey Goose called me because I was at the club and they know I work with a lot of artists. So do you care if I do some PR for Grey Goose? And then recognizing that these contacts spoke and got me to this place because the constant need to know what was going on, me being this nosy only child and wanting to know why people were going to the fashion shows. Well, I want to go to the fashion shows. Why are people sitting front row at the game? Well, I want to go to the game, but guess what? So does my artist. So that was the premise of Purple, which is expanded. And while I don't run the company anymore, it's ran by Andre Watson and my mom and a great group of young execs of color, Carrington Harris, Justin Pride, Sade. I can go on for days about the people that make up Purple, Felicia, RJ, Tevin, there's eight people that are doing their thing. But, you know, past, present, future are the people that have worked at Purple. What makes it work is that I look for the executive who wants to get in, but who also wants to be an entrepreneur because they're contracted employees. So you can kind of do what you want as long as you understand that the DNA of Purple is do your job, show up, but also 
be entrepreneurial. You know, I'm entrepreneur and entrepreneurial. I think those two words are always something that people think about. How do you be entrepreneurial but also be entrepreneurial? Those things are important to really finding out who you are. And I think that mindset has gotten me to this position. Again, like I said, at Columbia, where I took entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial skill sets to galvanize around urban talent that I did not want to see be boxed in. And so if I could tell you my purpose, my purpose has always been to say that I can take you all the way here because I know how to get into these doors if you do the work, if you remain authentic, and if you are willing to try. It's an amazing journey. And thanks for walking through, breaking down each of the steps because you hit a bunch of the topics that I think we're going to go through. The one thing that did interest me, one, recognizing early just how multi-hyphenate and talented all these artists are and needing to look through the entire platform and the opportunities they have. That's why you started an agency to be able to help maximize that. So that's spot on. And then also just now that you're in a leadership position, thinking a bit more broadly about what role Urban has with that. 30,000 feet at 30,000 feet always. It reminds me a lot about this conversation that's been happening this past year in response to Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's death around Republic Records and some of the other record labels trying to remove the urban title from them. And I remember you had this quote that I think someone must have asked you, oh, are you going to remove the title or how do you feel about Columbia still having the title? And I think you said, forgive me if I'm not quoting it specifically, but I think you said, I'm not going to let someone else put a timeline on my blackness of when I can say urban and when I can't say urban. Did I get that right? You're pretty close. And I said that because I really feel that way. I think to rush anyone into a decision on something that can affect them for the rest of their lives is unfair. And I am glad that I was in a system in a company where Ron Perry was the first to post about making sure that we do our jobs and rectify the situation. He also said, it's up to you all how you feel because it's heavy because it's a past, present, future conversation. I have to look at my foremothers and forefathers and why they needed that title. I need to look at what they went through for that title. I need to understand what that title means for the next generation if we don't have that title. And if we can't answer all those questions, then we take our time. And we understand that no matter what, I'm still black when I show up into a room, so that never goes away. People will have their preconceived notions of what I can and cannot do at any point in time because of what I look like. So that's never gonna go away. But what I don't wanna do is allow people who do not look like us to tell us how we should feel and make us answer a question without letting us come together as a collective. And I think what has not happened and still not really happened is that we have not come together to really come together as a collective and say, what do we want? Because we're dealing with too much other stuff, you know, outside of the urban title. What about the fact that people who look like you and me are dying in the street? I need to get through that first. I need to get through the fact that I'm a black woman who, when I drive my car, if I see a cop, I tense up, not because I'm doing anything, but I tense up because I wonder if he's going to pick on me because I am enjoying my outcast song in the car. And that cop doesn't care if you're a record label executive or someone else. I question that since I have a nice car, which I've earned, is he going to think that I am doing something illegal? That's what's going on in my head when I drive sometimes. And that's not something that most people have to think about, but that's what we have to think about when we get into a car. That's what we have to think about when we walk down the street. So I can't think about the title quite yet because I'm still thinking about 
can you just see me as human? When will you just see me as a human? And so that happens. The title is not really where I want my focus to be. I want everyone to really understand what it means to level a playing field that has never been leveled and allow me and my counterparts to be able to stand on the same field and have the same questions and have the same opportunities without assumptions. But again, that doesn't come unless you humanize me. And until we are all humanized, we have a long way to go. So that's where that was coming from. It wasn't a dig per se to the person or the label, because I have a lot of respect for a lot of people at Republic, including Monty Littman, including Avery, who I work for. So I wasn't attacking them. I was attacking the thought of having to rush into another decision on how to find myself. It's a big challenge. And I think that We've done a historical pattern of trying to put Band-Aids on solutions that require much more than Band-Aids. And it was great to see the money and the statements that were poured in. But at the end of the day, this is about providing power and empowerment to the people that don't have it to help change the narrative and using the industry's power to address some of the systemic challenges that are happening. And those are things that require tougher decisions than I think what we've seen. How do you feel about how the industry has responded so far to everything that happened in the summer with George Floyd? With anything, it's one step at a time, you know, and I can only look at it from the walls that I sit in. I think that again, just like anyone else's house, everyone has their own house and you can't throw, what do they say, rocks at a glass house because I don't know what's happening internally in any other company but my own. What I can say for Columbia Records is that our leadership answered the call immediately and we had a real conversation. My co-head, Sean, brought in Benjamin Crump to talk to our staff and we brought in a what I would call a, not media trainer, but a person that allowed us to have a real open conversation. And it wasn't what we planned. We had a town hall to talk about how we felt. Because again, I told you Ron Perry was the first to post from that level as a chairman. And so there was a light on that. And then I think you saw other posts follow from different labels. That conversation was raw and it was necessary. And I get chills when I think about it because it's the first time I think people started to recognize the people that they worked with Again, we're human. When you go to work and you're thinking about putting out that record, you're looking at the team and you're just like, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this. But in that moment, people start to have real stories about their personal journeys and their pain as being a person of color in America, but not in America, at work and how they felt at work when people said certain things or assumed certain things about them. And that open dialogue created a moment where people recognize that we have to do more if we really want to create a culture at this company. We have to actually start to see each other. And so that's been ongoing ever since that first town hall. We have weekly meetings and biweekly meetings and a different affinity meetings with various groups that talk about what they're going through because you got to talk about it. Otherwise, you can't get to the next step. But you can't get to the next step until you actually understand what the real problems are and recognize maybe how you've been a problem or how you've fed the stereotypes or made assumptions about people that you don't know what's going on about their personal life, their home life, just how they got to this particular position. So random coffee breaks, you know, you grab a name with someone you never know and you have to have a coffee break, just like we're having. I don't know you, but I feel comfortable with you and I'm talking to you. But 
that's because we're on a podcast and I know the questions, but what happens when you just don't know the questions and you just are forced to talk to somebody, no matter what their title is, what level they are or what color they are and create this level of, again, humanization, which is going to be my favorite word for a while, because I thought about what my job really meant through this stage. Again, nothing can be a dictatorship. And even though there's titles in an organization, there's people with real thoughts, no matter if they're an assistant, a manager, or a senior executive. I commend our younger staff, while I am part of this executive task force on the executive level, we let our junior staff and people who normally don't talk that much be in charge of really having a form to say, what issues affect you? Where would you like to see this money go? You know, there's always the charities that people know. There's the big charities, you know, there's American Red Cross, there's Boys and Girls Club, there's City of Hope, you know, there's T.J. Martell. There's charities that you know about because you know about them. But what about those things that just affect you personally? What does Dan want to see something go to? What might have happened to you growing up that you really were like, I really wish there was a place that gave money to this. And if there is, Dan, then please tell me because that's what we decided to focus on. We decided to focus on people's individual thoughts and suggestions so that it could be a real community within Columbia and a real effort to say that we came together as 200 individuals and said, we're not going to look at the noise over here. We're not going to worry about the label over here. We're going to worry about the label that we are at right now because we want to win as a label. And if we're going to win as a label, we have to communicate as a label. We have to also know what people are going through. And I think that has been evident with our president getting executive of the year. You know, that doesn't come without work and it doesn't come without a team. And that also comes because there came a passion that even with all the stuff that happened in April, even though all the stuff we still carry now, because I can't act like I don't carry it. I can't like acting like talking to you. I'm like, you know, how do I feel every day as a black woman when I show up on the screen where people can't see my emotion the same way, where people don't know how to interpret me. You know, that's never going to go away. There's an anxiety that comes from having to show up for people who may not understand you. But the reason I say this is that we did a job of saying, don't worry about everybody else. Let's worry about this company. Let's worry about how we function. Because if we don't get along, it doesn't matter. And if we don't garner respect for each other, it doesn't matter. And if we don't listen to everybody, regardless of what title you have, it doesn't matter because this is the future. This is the present. This is the past. Whatever it is, we're all in this building together. There's people who've been at Columbia for 20 years. People have been there for five years. People have been there for two months. But we got to figure out how to come together and make sure that we are in line and on the same mission and that we have the same mantra of how we move forward together, recognizing that the world is in pain. Everyone's not for the same side of the coin, but we're at the same company. So let's figure it out. I thank you for the leadership that you've taken on this. I know that it's a lot. I know it's a lot on you as a black woman. There are very few of you, not just at Columbia, but in this entire industry standing up for this. So thank you for that. I know you've got to run, but before we let you go, can you do a quick plug for the documentary that you're working on or anything else that we should know? So to backtrack, again, I told you I went to Spelman College, my writing partner and pro fight, I'm a Delta, she came to me about three and a half years ago. And she said, you know, I've been starting to interview different women about freezing their eggs. And it's always been taboo. And I think it goes back to, again, Black female body. There's this idea that our bodies don't have the same standards, that we don't experience pain the same way. I mean, you saw Serena Williams' documentary. You saw Beyonce's conversation. You recently saw Kiki Palmer talk about PCOS. And we recognize in talking to these 43 women that Black women don't freeze their eggs as soon as women that are 
non-Black. A, because of money. A, because of body knowledge. You know, but I really want to go back to, again, systematic oppression and financing and just not knowing. And then being scared of the doctor is kind of in our DNA, which goes through history of how things are passed down. And that trust that does not happen when you've seen people that look like you not get the same care and same love for their bodies. So documentary follows people who are doing IVF treatments, who are freezing their eggs, or who decided to be child-free by choice. But the goal is to inform women of color that you have fibroids five times more than anybody else. Five times more. That your immortality rate is 2.5 times more. So if you do not know these things, you need to know them. If you don't know that you have to start freezing your eggs at 28 years old, that's a problem. Most people are like, oh, I'll freeze them at 35, 40. No, you're supposed to be freezing them at 28 because the conversation for most women of color is get a job, take care of yourself, not plan for your future as it relates to your reproductive health. And so what we want for this documentary to do is while you're planning for your career and while you're planning to be that badass, that independent woman, you still know you want love and you still know you probably want kids and you probably want to get married. And if you don't, again, Child-free by choice, marriage-free by choice. But if you do, take the time to take a step back and say, am I taking the needed steps and the necessary steps to know my body, know where my eggs stand, know where my health stands? Do I know if I have fibroids in my family? Do I know all the things in the historical context that happen to our body so that I can prepare for that? And that is the purpose of that. And I would love to say that we were recently picked up by OWN and we will be on OWN starting in May. Great to hear. It's called Eggs Over Easy, right? Eggs Over Easy, Black Female Fertility. And the director and producer is Jaquita Lockley. We can put it in the show notes too. Felicia, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there and also shoot me a text that's also a great way to stay in touch with travel content you can text me dan runcy at 415-234-3074 thanks again see you next week